Welcome to Rabbi Michael Whitman's weekly podcast, Mining the Riches of the Parsha, where we discuss, using classic and modern sources, the insights of each Parsha that will make a difference in your life. Good evening. It's wonderful to see you, and it's wonderful to be together with you, and I look forward to being able to study together this evening. I want to start with sharing something that is uh, based on an essay by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. So if you have the Chumash, you can turn to page 762. We're going to start here. The Parsha is Nasso. And uh, we're going to start on page 762. This Parsha is a very, very long Parsha. One of the longest. But perhaps the most famous passage is a very, very short passage. And that is this passage on page 762 in the Stone Chumash. It's um, Perak Vav, chapter 6, starting Pasik Chabbez 22. Hashem says to Moshe the following words, Speak to Aaron and his sons with the following command, this is how you will bless the children of Israel. And Marlehem say to them the following words, May God bless you and protect you. May God make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. Yisah Hashem Panav Elecha, may God turn his face towards you, Vyasem Lecha Shalom, and establish you for peace. And then the Torah says, God tells the Jewish people, Vasamu Eshmi'al B'nei Yisrael, let them, the Kohanim, place my name upon the children of Israel, Va'ani Avorchem, and I will bless them. One of the oldest blessings, prayers that we have, certainly one of the most frequently invoked prayers. It was said, as the Torah commands, by the Kohanim, by the priests in the Beit HaMikdash, in the Holy Temple. It's said today, even in synagogues, by Kohanim outside of Israel on Yom Tov in Israel every day. It is said often by parents blessing their children every Friday night. Many times a marrying couple under the chuppah receives this blessing. Certainly one of the simplest and one of the most beautiful blessings in all of Jewish literature. And it appears that it is the oldest biblical text that physically exists in the world today. In 1979, a scroll was found about one inch long. Now, it took them three years just to figure out how to unravel it so that it didn't completely disintegrate. And when they unraveled this scroll, they found that it contained this passage, this bracha, the birchas kohanim, 
Yivarechacha, etc. These three verses. And by the way, uh, it was dated scientifically to the 6th century before the Common Era. That means near the end of the first temple period. That's from the time of Yirmiyo, Jeremiah. The oldest biblical text still in physical existence today, which is an amazing testament to the connection between the Jewish people and the land of Israel and the Torah of Israel. Okay, let's think for a moment and discuss the structure of this bracha, this blessing, because the structure is very, very powerful. Because the, there are three verses, and each verse moves inward. Let me explain what I mean. The first verse, the first bracha, Yivarechacha Hashem v'yishmerecha, may God bless you and protect you. Our sages point out that refers to material blessings, that we should have enough parnasa, sustenance, that we should have physical health. Rabbi Dr. Avraham Tversky adds that Yivarechacha Hashem, God should bless you with physical plenty, v'yishmerecha, and protect you, says Dr. Tversky, protect you from the effects of having that material wealth. Because in fact, very often having material plenty can cause a person problems, can cause temptations. And therefore we pray to Hashem that we should have what we need, but that it should not be harmful to us. Abraham Lincoln once said, nearly all men can withstand adversity. If you want to test a man's character, give him wealth. Rebetzin Chana Cutler once said, I pray that my children should never have more than they need. It's an amazing prayer because if we receive plenty, we need to be protected that we use it properly, that we act properly with it. Okay, that's the first line. That's the first, the first pasuk, the first bracha. The second line is, Yo'er Hashem May God make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. The word chain, the word chain is a moral blessing. Chain is we use the word grace, it, but it means a person has moral, moral characteristics of kindness and compassion and uh, gentleness. That's chen. So in this second line, what we're saying to God is, God, would you please share with us? We're asking you to share with us some of your chen so that we will have that kindness and that compassion so that we are able to live together without strife and without envy. Okay, that's a little bit more inward. That's character. That's personality. The third Pusuk is the most inward of all. We say, Yisah Hashem Panav Elecha May God turn His face toward you. What does that mean? 
that God should turn his face towards you, towards me? Rabbi Sachs tells the story. There was a crowd of people gathered on a hill by the sea. And they were crowded together by the sea watching a ship passing by. And there was one boy in the crowd that was waving vigorously, vigorously to this ship. Ship was far away. So one of the men standing next to him said, uh, why are you doing that? So the boy says, I'm waving to the captain of the ship that he should see me and he should wave back to me. So the man says, but wait a second, the ship is very far away. And there's a crowd of us here on the shore. What makes you think that the captain is going to see you? And the boy says, because the captain of the ship is my father and he will be looking for me among the crowd. That's what this bracha is. We are God's children. And that means that God is our parent. And that means that God turns his face toward us. God cares about us like a parent cares for a child. Someone once told me this story. I would say, I've shared this before, the most emotionally um, contradictory holiday that we have I would say, is Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah, the beginning of the Jewish year, we celebrate, it's a Yom Tov, but it's also Yom Hadin, it's a day of judgment. We come before God and we're judged by God. So how do we, how do we balance being fearful of what that judgment might be with being celebratory? So it once happened that Rabbi Shlomo Karbach, just before Rosh Hashanah, was in a very celebratory mood. He was singing and he was making some jokes and he was very, very joyful. And someone said to him, you know, Rosh Hashanah, Amos Hadin, aren't you afraid of the judgment? Aren't you, don't you feel the weight of the, the, the fear of Rosh Hashanah? And Rabbi Shlomo Karbach said, it's okay. The judge is my father. And that leads to the last phrase of that third Pasik. V'yaseim l'cha shalom. And let God grant you peace. The knowledge that God turns his face toward us the knowledge that God relates to every single one of us in a unique and singular manner. Notice, by the way, that these brachos, these blessings, are all in the singular, not the plural. They're said by the Kohen to the entire Jewish people, in the synagogue to the entire congregation. And yet they're said in the singular, perhaps to indicate that it is a relationship, an individual relationship between me and God, between you and God, who is looking at you at this moment when this blessing is being bestowed.
And that is the greatest source of peace. How do we have peace? How do we feel peace in this world? When I know that God is looking for me and waving to me as I wave to Him, I don't need to prove myself to be blessed by God. All I need to know is that He's looking for me. And then, when I am at peace with myself, I can begin to make peace with the world. I shared this story once before. It's a remarkable story because the truth is that we can emulate that peace that comes from love in every circumstance, in any kind of circumstance. So I want to tell you this story about Sergeant Joseph Cerna. Sergeant Cerna was a Special Forces U.S. soldier. He did four combat tours in Afghanistan. He was almost killed three times. Came back, he had earned three Purple Hearts and other military awards. And when he came back to his home in North Carolina, like many combat veterans, he was unable to leave the battlefield behind. He suffered from PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. He was arrested for driving under the influence of alcohol. And he was ordered into a court veterans treatment program. That is a court-ordered program to treat veterans who are suffering from PTSD and alcoholism and this program was overseen by a judge, District Court Judge Lou Oliveira. Serba was trying to be sober, trying to go straight. He appeared before the judge 25 times to have his progress reviewed. And then, at a court hearing, Serba confessed to Judge Oliveira that he had lied about a recent drug test. And so the judge sentenced Serna to one day in jail. The former soldier had no way to get to the jail, and so the judge drove Serna to the jail, which was a distance away. Cerna sat down on his cot in the cell and then he heard the door to the cell open and he saw Judge Oliveira standing there. Oliveira sat down next to him and then a guard came and locked the door. And Cerna said to him, Judge, you're here for the entire time to stay with me? And the judge says, yeah, that's what I'm doing. I'm here with you all night. It was certainly something that was outside of the comfort zone of this judge. But you hear the love 
and the admiration that this judge has for a soldier who is trying, not always succeeding, but trying to do the right thing. And he's able to love that person even when he has to sentence him to jail. Now this phrase, V'yaseim l'cha shalom, referring to the blessing of peace at the end of this famous passage, this phrase in particular has layers of deep meaning. So I want to share with you, our rabbis say, the passage in the Talmud says this, the passage in the Midrash says this, that the word shalom, peace, the word shalom also means whole or complete, but the word shalom is also one of God's names. We refer to God as shalom. So the Maharal, the great scholar from the 16th century, asked the following question. Okay, shalom is uh, a characteristic, um, a mida, peace. There are other midas, there are other characteristics. There's truth, there is courage, there is there are all kinds of other midas. Why is God's name shalom and not, for example, uh, MS, truth, or rachamim, compassion? Why is it shalom, peace? So the Maral gives the following answer. He says, if it were not for God's intervention, the world should have been destroyed long ago because people are so different from each other. Now, I mentioned just before, the word shalom has two meanings and those two meanings are connected. The word shalom means peace. The word shalom also means whole, complete. God's completeness is what connects all of these different people who are so different from each other. But what allows for shalom, for peace, is realizing that I reflect one aspect of God and you reflect another aspect of God. Now, you and I may be very, very different from each other, but you and I are connected by all of us reflecting some aspect of one God. That is what connects us. That is what allows us to live together b'shalom, in peace. That's how God's wholeness, God's completeness allows for peace in this world. And that's why it's God's name, because it is what keeps this world going. And we need to try to live up to that ourselves. I want to share with you something that I had the privilege to hear directly from Rabbi Norman Lamb of Blessed Memory who passed away this week. I heard this from Rabbi Lamb at an annual convention of the RCA, the Rabbinical Council of America, many years ago. And I share this with you tonight because it deepens our understanding of what we're discussing 
and they also share it in a tribute to his memory. So on Shabbos morning, at the end of davening, at the end of our service, we say the prayer, Enkelokeinu. Everyone's happy with Enkelokeinu because that means the Kiddush is coming soon. So at the end of this prayer of Enkelokeinu, we end it by quoting two passages in the Talmud. First line goes like this, It was taught in the yeshiva of Eliyahu. Whoever studies laws every day, halacha, Jewish law, whoever studies Jewish law every day, it is certain, it is guaranteed that that person will be deserving of a share in the world to come. Wow, that's amazing. Certainly worthwhile to learn a halacha every day to be guaranteed a share in the world to come. Okay, that's passage number one. Passage, the next line, passage number two, goes like this. Amr Rabbi Eliezer, Amr Rabbi Hanina, Rabbi Elazar says in the name of Rabbi Hanina, Tamide Chachamim Marbim Shalom Ba'olam. Torah scholars, Torah leaders, increase peace in the world. So Rabbi Lam told us this story. He told us a story about a man who spent 10 years researching the topic of humor in the Talmud. And after 10 years, this man gave up and he said, there is no humor in the Talmud. After 10 years of research, I only found one joke in the entire Talmud. And that joke is, Torah leaders increase peace in the world. It's kind of a cynical, sad joke because so often Torah leaders do not lead to peace, do not increase peace. So Rabbi Lam asked the following question. Why do we quote these two passages at the end of this prayer and specifically look again, think again about the first passage. First passage says, whoever studies a halacha every day is guaranteed to have a share in the world to come. Now, I would think, makes sense, if you are going to say that line, the next line should be a halacha. Learn a law. Learn Learn one law so that you'll be deserving of this reward. But you know that the Talmud is divided into halacha, laws, and agada. Agada is the stories, the narratives, the philosophy, everything in the Talmud that is not legal, that is not rules or laws. So the line about tamid chachamim, the Torah scholars increase peace, that's not law, that's part of agada, that's part of the non-legal section of the Talmud. Why would we follow the line that says, if you learn a law every day, you'll go to the world to come. Why not follow it with a law? Why follow it with something that's not a law? Rabbi Lam said, Torah scholars, Torah leaders, increase peace in the world. That is a law. That is what a Torah leader is required to do. It's not descriptive. 
It is prescriptive. If a person is not working on increasing peace in the world, they are not a Torah scholar. They are not a Torah leader, regardless of what else they know or teach or say. This is a halacha. This is a requirement to be the kind of person that increases peace in order to be considered a scholar and a leader. And it needs to be a prescription for all of us. And I would add, in the context of what the United States is going through now, in the aftermath of George Floyd being killed by police, I would add the first step to bringing peace, to increasing peace, is to listen. To listen to what others who are different from us, to listen to what they experience, to listen to what they feel. I want to share something with you. I saw it on Facebook. And I think it's very powerful. This post starts as follows. I am a 45-year-old white woman living in the South. And today was the first time I spoke frankly about racism with a black man. So she tells a story about a man named Ernest. Ernest is her appliance repairman. And he has come to her house to fix various appliances and he does a very good job. And since they kind of knew each other a little bit and they talk a little bit, and this fellow Ernest is a very nice man, a very friendly man, so she said to him, would you mind if I ask you a question? Would you be willing to tell me what it's like for you just on a day-to-day -day basis as a black man in the United States of America? And she said to him, did the police ever give you any trouble? So listen to what Ernest says. Ernest, again, a middle-aged man. He is a successful business owner. He owns this appliance repair business. He wears a uniform to work. He has a, uh, a work van with the logo of his company on the side of the van. He said that he gets pulled over by the police at least six times a year. Not for traffic violations. He gets pulled over because the police suspect him of being a criminal. He's in uniform, he's a business owner, he's on his job, middle-aged man, black man. And they start to ask him questions. What are those boxes in the car? Where did you get this money from? Are you selling drugs? 
And if he would say to them something like, can I see your badge? Then he get, gets in trouble. They get angry at him. Every time, again, over six times a year, every time, he is the one who has to explain himself, although they have no real cause to question him. He says, I used to go out on calls at night. Someone had an emergency. The dishwasher breaks, the refrigerator breaks. You call a repairman. He used to go out on calls if it was an emergency at night. He said, no more, I don't go out at night. It's too dangerous for me to go out at night. For me, a black man, to go out at night, it's too dangerous. It's not safe. It's not safe. Ernest said he does not have hope that racism will change. His dad taught him it's a white man's world and he does his best to live in it. When I asked him, this is the woman speaking, when I asked him what I could do, he said, everyone needs to pray and realize we're all just one country and one people. And then this woman finishes by saying, I am a 45-year-old white woman living in the South. I can begin healing our country by listening. Let's start by listening. It's that simple. I want to share one more thing with you. This is really remarkable. It is an op-ed column that was written by Karim Abdul-Jabbar. It appeared in the Los Angeles Times. It would be very easy to find online. I urge you, find this column online. Karim Abdul-Jabbar, Los Angeles Times. He, was, he, he is a former star basketball player. And he is a deeply thoughtful, eloquent man. So I want to read to you just a couple of paragraphs from this piece. It's, it, it's, I think it's remarkable. What do you see when you see angry black protesters amassing outside police stations with raised fists. If you're white, you may be thinking they certainly aren't social distancing. Then you notice the black faces looting Target and you think, well, that just hurts their cause. Then you see the police station on fire and you wag a finger saying, that's putting the cause backward. You're not wrong, but you're not right either. Yes, protests often are used as an excuse for some to take advantage, just as when fans celebrating a hometown sports team championship. Let's remember this, Montreal. Celebrating a hometown sports team championship burn cars and destroy storefronts. 
I, I, I want to be clear, I'm not defending or legitimizing in any way. I'm going back to reading what Jabbar says. I don't want to see stores looted or buildings burned, but African Americans have been living in a burning building for many years, choking on the smoke as the flames burn closer and closer. Racism in America, and I would add in Canada, is like dust in the air. It seems invisible, even if you're choking on it until you let the sun in. Then you see it's everywhere. As long as we keep shining that light, we have a chance of cleaning it wherever it lands. But we have to stay vigilant because it's always still in the air. So maybe the black community's main concern right now isn't whether protesters are standing three or six feet apart, but whether their sons Husbands, brothers, and fathers will be murdered by cops. What I want to see is not a rush to judgment, but a rush to justice. We ask God to grant us peace. But we need to do our part. We need to be able to look at others and see that he and I, she and I, both all reflect aspects of God. And that is what connects us. And if we can really start to listen and hear what others are feeling and experiencing, we'll be taking the first step to the healing and peace that we so drastically need. I want to share one last short piece with you on a different subject. If you want to turn in the Chumash to page, oh, the same, to same page, page 764. Page 764 in the Stone Chumash. Okay, so in this week's parsha, the Torah describes that when the Jewish people completed building the Mishkan, the sanctuary that was commanded to be built by God, and they completed the structure just short of a year after leaving Egypt, and they had a dedication. And the dedication of this Mishkan, this sanctuary, lasted for 12 days. And on each day of this dedication, a different one of the Nesim, one of the princes of each of the tribes, there were 12 tribes, 12 princes, each day one of the princes brought a gift, a sacrifice, an offering to be offered in honor of this dedication. And the Torah describes in detail, the gifts that were brought, the names of the twelve Nesim. I want to focus just on the first Pasuk. Again, page 764. The Torah introduces this passage with the following words. Pasuk number 2. Pasuk Beis. Vayakrivu Nesiei Yisrael. 
and the princes of Israel offered, brought this offering. So they're called the princes of Israel, Rashi Beis Avosam, the heads of their father's households, Haim Nesiyeh Hamatos, they are the princes of the tribes, Haim Haomdim Al Hapkudim, they are those who stood as the people were counted. And they are the ones that bring these offerings on the first day this one, the second day that one, one through twelve. But this introductory Pusuk is very curious because it describes these twelve individuals with four different expressions. It calls them Nisiei Yisrael, princes of Israel, Rashi Beis Avosam, the heads of their father's households, Nisiei Hamatos, the princes of the tribes, Haomdim al Hapkudim, who stood by the counting of the Jewish people. Now, first of all, why does the Torah describe them with four different phrases of description? And second of all, the phrases are either contradictory or redundant. Because, for example, to call them the princes of the tribes means that they're in charge of the entire tribe. To call them the head of their father's household seems to indicate they're the, 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 the leader of their individual family. Well, which is it? Are they a leader of a family or are they a leader of an entire tribe? It's contradictory. The phrase, Nisiei Yisrael, makes the phrase, Nisiei Hamatos, redundant. To call them the princes of Israel and the princes of the tribes, it's the same thing. So, why are these four phrases being used? Rashi provides an insight that is just astounding, and it gives such an amazing depth of understanding. And I want to suggest to you that especially today, another essential element in dealing with all of these crises that we are facing is the need that we have for effective and honorable leadership. And listen to this lesson in leadership. Says Rashi, who were these 12 men? Says Rashi, Shahayu Shotrim Alehem Bimitzrayim. These 12 men were officers appointed by the Egyptians over the Jews to make sure that they would do their work in building the bricks. And if the Jews did not build the number of bricks that they were supposed to build in a given day, these officers would be beaten on account of the people's not having created enough bricks that day. These princes were not aristocrats. They were not selected for this leadership because of family connections. These were people who, when the Jewish people were suffering in Egypt, these 12 individuals were beaten 
defending the other Jewish slaves who had not completed their work. They bore the pain of the Jewish people. They earned the right to be in this position of leadership. There are two different words, two different Hebrew words that denote a leader. One is the word rosh, which literally means head, and the other is nasi, which literally means prince. They both mean leader, but the connotation is different. A rosh is a leader who leads with his or her mind and spirit. A nasi is something very different. The word nasi, which we translate as prince, also means to carry and to lift up, to place on one's shoulder. A nasi is a person who carries his people on his shoulders, who feels its pain, who finds remedies for that pain. The Torah wants to show us who these princes are and why they deserve this position of leadership. They deserve this position of leadership because they were completely engrossed in concern for the other people. They were the heads of their father's houses because they viewed every single Jewish person as their own child, as their own family, and they took the beating on their behalf. It is so important for us to be able to trust our leaders, to be able to be confident, to rest assured that our leaders make our concerns, their first priority, our needs, our problems, their first priority. Our leaders must be willing to be beaten on our account. And if that is true, then they will surely lead us down a safe path. And if that is not true, then we're in big trouble. Hopefully God will provide not only for the Jewish people, but for the world, leaders who are honorable, who follow this model of leadership. And then, with God's help, we'll be on the right path. My friends, thank you very, very much it is a great pleasure to see you. I wish you a wonderful Shabbos, and I look forward to seeing you back in shul, in person, soon.